right, at this time we're going to pray, and I just want to ask once again that you'd please keep me in prayer. As I mentioned the other night, even today, my, my voice is not at 100%, and so in this presentation, I, I just wish I, I had the strength in my voice to be able to share how excited I am, but I'm going to have to hold back tonight a little bit. I'm going to have to stay in first or second gear. I, I would like to be in fifth gear all the way, but um, just please pray for me. And um, maybe we'll hop, hop into third or fourth gear, depending on how much you pray. <laughs> but uh, why don't we bow our heads and ask the Holy Spirit to be with us as we study God's Word. Dear Lord, we thank you again for your goodness. We thank you, Lord, for the depth of your love for us. It's not something we can fully comprehend, Lord. Our minds are too small, too puny. But we thank you, Lord, that Though words cannot adequately describe your love, though our minds cannot adequately understand it fully, we thank you that our hearts are able to experience it. And tonight we pray that as we study your word, that we would experience your love for us afresh as you reveal to us the truth about death and the hope that we have beyond the grave. We pray that Jesus will be seen we pray that truth will be clear and that tonight we would have an encounter with you. Bless us now as we study. Holy Spirit, please speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Can the dead speak to us? The Bible will give us the answer to that question tonight. But before we get to that, I want to share with you a story about a little boy who was uh, walking through a cemetery one day reading the tombstones. And he was just, you know, going from tomb to tombstone to tombstone, reading what it had to say. And he, he came across this one man whose name was Paul Adams. And that tombstone said this, Stop, my friend, as you go by. As you are now, so once was I. As I am now, you soon shall be. So prepare yourself to follow me. Little boy read those words. He thought about it for a moment. Then he pulled a crayon out of his pocket and he wrote beneath those words his response. And here's what his response was. To follow you, I'm not content until I know just where you went. <laughs> and that's what we want to find out tonight, amen? I want to find out what happens. Where do people go when they die? And this is a very relevant question because there's so much confusion, to be quite honest, about this question in the world today. Many people think that when you die, you become a ghost or you go and become some type of wandering spirit looking for a resting place. Others believe that when you die, you go and you live with your ancestors somewhere, wherever they go when they die. Others believe that when you die, you're reincarnated into another form of life. It could be an animal life or a human life, depending on your karma and the good that you've done in this life. Then there are others who believe that when you die, you go straight to heaven or hell, or some people believe a middle place called purgatory. Then there are others who believe that when you die, you go into the grave and you sleep until the resurrection. And then there are those who believe there's no such thing as life after death at all. So we find that many people are confused about this deadly topic. Not only in Hollywood do we find the confusion, but even in the church. And you find this demonstrated at, at, at many funeral services where the minister or the priest will get up and the casket is there with the deceased loved one. 
This priest is wanting, he means well, he, want, he, he wants to comfort the family members of the deceased. And he'll say something like, don't worry, loved ones. Your brother, your sister, th- your, your mother, your father, so-and-so, they are in a better place right now. They're in heaven. They're walking the streets of gold. They're singing with the angels. They're there with Jesus. Don't be so sad. They're in a better place. They're with the Lord today. And then after that, as they get to the graveside, as the casket is lowered six feet under, that same priest or minister will say, may you rest in peace until the resurrection. Well, I thought he just said that he was in heaven. Now he's saying, may you rest in peace until the resurrection. Confusion, right? And then after that, some family members would, would have a prayer vigil praying for their loved one to come out of purgatory. So wait a minute. Is that is that loved one in heaven or in the, in the ground or are they in purgatory? They can't be in all those places at once because only God is omnipresent. Isn't that right? So we find that there's a lot of confusion even in the church concerning this topic. But I'm thankful, friends, that the Word of God dispels the confusion, the confusion concerning death. And so we need to ask the question, what really happens when a person dies? Can the dead speak to us, and can the living communicate with the dead? Well, friends, I want you to notice what God says concerning those who try to communicate with those who have passed away. God is very strong against such a practice. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 10 through 12, please write it down. And by the way, friends, listen, we have a lot of scriptures we're going to show you tonight. Anywhere from 30 to 40 scriptures. And remember, friends, the reason why we give so many scriptures is because the only way you can know truth on any given topic in the Bible is not by one or two verses. You can take one or two verses and make up your own idea, your own belief system. In order to know what truth really is, we have to see what the entire Bible has to say about a subject. We have to get all the verses from Genesis to the book of Revelation, all the cooperating verses. We bring them together. We compare them with themselves. And only as we do that does truth emerge very clearly and logically. And so tonight is, again, another of those, one of those messages, a lot of verses, so we can let the Bible interpret itself. But notice as we start, Deuteronomy 18, 10 through 12. Thou shalt, thou, there shall be not found among you anyone who makes his son or daughter pass through the fire, or one who practices what? Witchcraft. Or a soothsayer or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who conjures spells, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. For all who do these things are on, what did God say? Abomination to the Lord. The Bible tells us, God says, that spiritualism in all of its forms, whether it be witchcraft, magic, black or white, these types of things, crystal ball gazers and palm readers and horoscopes and these, this false uh, science called astrology, these things are abomination, an abomination to the Lord, friends. And the reason why God speaks so strongly against it and the desire of speaking to the dead is because God knows that this is one of Satan's ways of deceiving the world, especially in the last days. In fact, notice in Exodus chapter 22 and verse 18, you shall not permit a sorceress to live, God says, under a theocratic form of government. If there was one practicing sorcery or witchcraft 
amongst the people of God in Israel. They would be stoned to death, friends. It's very serious. And so we need to be clear tonight that, that even though it seems innocent, that things like Harry Potter and Twilight and, and all of these magic cards are an abomination to God, friends. We're dabbling into the devil's deceptions when we're entertained by these things. The reason why God feels strongly about this, because God knows that in Revelation, it reveals how Satan is going to deceive almost the whole world through the means of spiritualism and sorcery. In fact, you'll find this over and over again. But notice with me in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 14. 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 14 tells us what makes Satan's deceptions so captivating. Notice what it says. Please write it down. The Bible says, For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of who? Of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into what? An angel not of darkness, but an angel of light. So we find that Satan has the power to masquerade as an angel of light. He has the power to transform his outward appearance and appear as a glorious heavenly messenger. Now, friends, when you think about it, if Satan can transform into an angel of light, do you suppose he can transform his appearance and come in the appearance of Jesus? Do you think he can do that, yes or no? Oh, yes, friends, and that's, I believe, one of the reasons why Jesus said, when they say to you that I'm in the desert, do not go forth. Or if I'm in the secret chambers, believe it not. Jesus said many false Christs and false prophets will rise up in the last days. And so we cannot trust our senses if a dazzling being approaches us and, and appears to us looking like Jesus, claiming to be Jesus. It does not mean that it is Jesus because Satan has that power. And friends, if Satan can transform into an angel of light, do you suppose he can come in the appearance of a man or woman? Yes or no? Oh, of course, that's easy for Satan to do. And if he can do that, could he come in the appearance of some deceased saint like the Apostle Paul or Peter or the Virgin Mary? Can Satan come in that appearance? Yes or no? Of course, friends, he can do it. And if, that, if he can do that, do you suppose that Satan can come in the appearance of one of our deceased loved ones? And if that's the case, could it be possible that the apparitions people are seeing are simply demons in disguise coming to deceive. Yes, friends, and we're going to see tonight that that is exactly the case. And that's the reason why the Apostle Paul wrote in Galatians 1 verse 8, write it down. It says, but though we are an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be what? The apostle said that if an angel from heaven comes and preaches a different gospel than that which we have preached, let that angel be accursed. And here's the reason why, because God will never contradict himself. And so any supposed angel that preaches a different gospel, a, a, a gospel that, con, uh, that contradicts what God has already revealed, you can know that that is really not an angel from heaven. That's an angel from hell masquerading as a heavenly messenger. It is a demon in disguise. And that's the reason why, friends, we cannot trust our senses. We can't trust our feelings and emotions 
the devil can manipulate our senses. And if we're accustomed to walking by sight instead of by faith, we just might end up following his deceptions, thinking that we're following the truth. You see, Satan can perform signs and wonders and miracles. And that's the reason why miracles are not an indication of truth, because the devil can do miracles as well. There are true miracles, but there are false miracles. There's true healings. There's also false counterfeit healings. The devil can make statues weep. He can cause bright lights to shine in the sky. And for this cause, everything must be tested by a thus saith the Lord. And then it is written. The Bible, friends, notice in Isaiah 8, 20, 8, verse 19 and 20. And when they say to you, seek those who are mediums and wizards, who whisper and mutter, should not a people seek their God? Should they seek the dead on behalf of the living? The answer is no. It's a rhetorical question. And then it says, verse 20, to the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is how much light in them? No light in them. You see, friends, if, if, if someone comes in the name of Jesus and it teaches something that is contrary to the word of Jesus, there is no light in that individual. There's nothing but darkness. So everything must be tested by the law and the testimony. It must speak according to the word of God, not some subjective experience we had with some type of mystical spirit or feeling. Every experience must be tested by the Bible. We don't test the Bible by an experience. We test every experience by the Bible. Can you say amen? amen. The devil can manipulate things. He can deceive us. The Word of God is what frees us from the demonic deceptions of Satan. But here's the thing, friends. If we do not know what the Word teaches about death, or if we're confused about it, we just might end up following our senses into the seducements of Satan, the lovely lies of Lucifer, and the confusing counterfeits of the Antichrist. And so let me ask you the question in light of that. Do you think it's important to know exactly what God's Word tells us about death? Do you suppose that's important, yes or no? Well, how important do you think it is? It is of eternal importance, friends. Why? Because if we don't know, the devil will deceive us and he will confuse us. And so for this reason, we spend the entire night tonight going from Genesis all the way to Revelation, getting almost all the verses or many of the verses together to find out exactly what happens when a person dies. Friends, do you see, do you realize that from the beginning, Satan's goal was, try to, was to try to confuse man about death. In fact, Satan's first lie was about death. you realize that? He came in the form of the serpent. That's the first medium. In the Garden of Eden, at the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And he said to our first mother, you shall not surely die. He tried to confuse us about death. Notice what he said. Genesis chapter 3, verse 4 and 5. The serpent said unto the woman, you shall not surely die. But what did God say? What did God say? If you eat of this fruit, you will surely die. But here we find Satan contradicting God's word, saying to Eve, you will not surely die. Well, what's going to happen then? For God doth know that in the day that you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be what? Open, and you shall be as? You shall be as God's, knowing good and evil. Here we find Satan says to Eve, 
you're not going to surely die, but rather you got, your eyes are going to be open. You're going to be like God. In other words, what Satan is saying is, is Eve, you're going to die, but not surely. Instead, you're going to be just like God. Your eyes are going to be open. In other words, Eve, there is life in sin. And death is simply one phase of existence to another higher exalted phase of existence and consciousness. You might die, but not surely your eyes are going to be open. You're going to see things you've never seen and experienced before. And friends, this is the origin of spiritualism. It's the first lie of Satan to confuse man about death, basically saying that death is one phase of existence to another. Your soul or your spirit will live on in a higher state of consciousness. It's the doctrine of the immortal soul. And friends, do you realize that most religions, in fact, almost all religions, believe this doctrine that came straight from Satan. How do I know, friends? The reason why I know that is because it will be hard for, for me to find anyone that would be willing to walk through a cemetery 12 o'clock midnight on Friday the 13th, <laughs> especially on a, a very cold and windy night. No one wants to do that. They're uncomfortable. Why? Because we all know that those in that cemetery are dead, but maybe not surely dead. <laughs> We're confused, friends. We believe that there is consciousness in death. That's what the devil was teaching. It's the doctrine of the immortal soul. And this is the foundational teaching of spiritualism. I got the chance to visit the, 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 the historical site of the home of the Fox sisters there in New York, Huntsville, or Hydesville, New York. And this was the birthplace of modern spiritualism. There's a plaque there, and basically the bottom line of it all is that there is no death. There are no dead. The teaching is that the body dies, but the soul or spirit lives on in a state of consciousness, that there really is no death, nor are there any that are really dead. That's exactly what the serpent was saying, friends. You won't surely die. You're going to be like God, knowing good and evil. Your eyes are going to be open. In fact, notice, those who worship Satan believe this. Those who follow demons believe this. Notice, uh, uh, um, an author of, of this book talking about spiritualism. The fundamental principle of spiritism is that human beings, what, survive bodily death, and that occasionally, under conditions not yet fully understood, we can communicate with those who have gone before. The foundational fundamental teaching of spiritualism is the belief that when you die, you don't really die. The soul lives on in consciousness. Friends, this belief paves the way for demons in disguise to come and deceive. Those who worship Satan acknowledge that this is the devil's doctrine. In fact, they even quote the serpent as the originator of this teaching. I want you to notice what another uh, spiritualist author had to say. It says, spiritualism says that the dead know what? more than the living. They, they say that the Bible says that, but the spiritualists, those who believe this, they say that the dead know more than the living. And the serpent said unto the woman, you shall not surely die in this, as in many other Bible passages, the devil told the truth, and the Lord is in error, so they say. 
They say that when Satan said that, he was actually saying the truth and that God was the one that was lying. And friends, while this sounds shocking to you, I heard your response. It's shocking, isn't it? You realize that many Christians are saying the exact same thing. How do I know? Well, let me just ask you. What do most Christians believe happens when a person dies? The body dies, but they either go straight to heaven or hell. That's what most Christians believe. And friends, if that were true, that when you die, you go straight to heaven, then that would mean that the dead knows more than the living. Because you wouldn't just know what happened here on earth. You would be knowing and seeing what's happening in heaven. Friends, this is exactly what Satan wanted us to believe. You see, the doctrine of the immortal soul is not found in the Bible. Remember, friends, when Jesus comes the second time, it's then that the dead in Christ are going to rise. In 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall come down. You have to correct me with more enthusiasm than that, friends. The dead in Christ shall rise first. You see, the Bible teaches clearly that only when Jesus returns will the dead in Christ rise to go to heaven. It's then that families that have been separated by death are going to be resurrected from the grave and they're going to be reunited in life. That's what the Bible teaches. And we'll show many scriptures concerning that tonight. And so, did Satan really tell the truth when he said that the dead know more than the living and you won't surely die? No, friends, he was lying. So who can free us from his lies? Jesus Christ. In Revelation 1 verse 18, Jesus says, I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I'm alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of hell. This word is the word Hades. It means the grave. What does it mean? The keys of the grave and of death. You see, the one that can help us understand what happens in the grave and at death is the one that died and was buried and was resurrected, Jesus Christ. And so as we go to his words and his teachings, it will free us from the lovely lies of Lucifer and the deadly deceptions of the devil. You see, friends, what we need to understand tonight is this. And that is, before we can understand the mystery of death, we first must understand the equation of, li of life. Before we understand death, we must first understand what? The equation of life. That is what we are made of and how God gave us life. So what we're going to do right now is we're going to put the topic of death to the side for a moment, and we're going to pick up this topic of life, the equation of life. And when we can fully understand life, then we'll pick up the topic of death, and it will make logical, congruent, and biblical sense. Because we're going to see that death is simply life, but in reverse. Okay, so are you with me so far? So the question is, how did God make us? What is man made of? Notice what it says in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7. Genesis, what chapter? 2 and verse 7. You can open your Bible. It's also on the screen. The Bible says, 
And the Lord God formed man out of the what? The dust of the ground. And breathed into his nostrils the what? The breath of life. And man, what is this word right here? Became a what? This is how God made man. I want you to notice, when God made man, it was different than how he made everything else. Everything else he spoke into existence. But when it came to man, the Bible says that he formed man with his own hands from dust. He formed the body of man. We are, we are made of dust, friends. We're, we're just clay in the hands of the potter. And then when he formed our body, he then breathed into the nostrils, into the what? His own breath. That was the, 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 that's the first CPR right there. He breathed his breath into our nostrils. And as a result of doing that, it says that man became a living soul. I want you to notice, it does not say that man was given a soul. It says that man became a soul. That's very important because many people get confused uh, from that word. Man was not given a soul. We do not have a soul, but rather man became a soul, which shows, that we, which shows that we are a soul. But what is the soul made of? Two things. The dust and the breath equals a living soul. So here's the creation equation of man. Now we're going to move step by step very slowly through this. God took the dust. He added his breath. And dust plus breath equals a living soul, which simply is a living person. In other words, we were not given a soul, we became a soul. Do you understand that difference, yes or no? We don't have a soul, we are a soul. Because what are we made of? The dust and the life-giving breath of God. We're going to break this down more in detail, because here's the reason. The confusion about death lies in the confusion of terminology. Terminology meaning what words or terms mean. People get confused because they do not know what words mean in the Bible. We attach our own meaning to specific words, and sometimes we, when we do that, we come to a different conclusion. So what we need to do, friends, is we need to find out what are the biblical definitions of words that are used. We can't just think, oh, I know that word, and this is what I know what it means, because the Bible might have something different in mind when it uses words. Does that make sense? So the confusion of death lies in the confusion of terminology. Therefore, if we can define words clearly, the confusion is going to dissipate like dew before the morning sun. And so we want to now define what is the dust, what is the breath, and what is the soul. Let's start with this word, the soul. What exactly is a soul? If you look up the word soul in the Hebrew, it's the word nefesh. Can you say that? And it simply means a living being, person, or creature. It, it simply means you and me, friends. Not something in us, but it's us. Notice how the Bible uses the word soul. In Acts 2, verse 41, it says, Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 what? Souls were added to them. Now, on the day of Pentecost, when those people were baptized, and it says 3,000 souls were added to them, does that mean that 3,000 spiritual, mystical entities entered into the people? No, friends. When it says 3,000 souls were added to them, it's simply referring to 3,000 people were added to the church. 
The way the Bible uses the word soul is to denote the whole person, the, a, a, a living being. In fact, you can write down Acts 7, 14, Acts 27, 37, and over and over again in the Bible, we find the word soul denoting a living person. Now, I want you to notice, <clears throat> the next question is this, can the soul die? Well, friends, listen. What's the soul? You're the soul. So to answer that question, can the soul die, you just have to ask, can you die? So if you can die and you are the soul, can the soul die, yes or no? Yes, and that's exactly what the Bible teaches. There's no such thing as the immortal soul. Ezekiel 18.4 says, Behold, all souls are mine. As the soul of the Father, so also the soul of the Son is mine. The soul that sins, it shall live forever. <laughs> it shall what? It shall die, friends. The soul that sins shall die. And how many have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God? All of us. All of us are subject to death. In other words, none of us have immortality in and of ourselves. That's what Satan wanted us to believe. When he said, you won't surely die, your eyes are going to be open, you're going to be like God. But the Bible teaches that the soul that sins will die. Now, the King James Version of the Bible uses the word soul over 1,600 times. Never once does it use the expression, the immortal soul. The only time immortality is used in the Bible is, is, is when it's referring to either God himself or the gift that God will give to his saints when he comes the second time at the resurrection. Notice with me in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 15 and 16. The King of kings and Lord of lords, who what? Only hath what? The word immort immortal or immortality means cannot die. Who is the only one that cannot die? Who is the only one that has life in himself that's immortal? It's the King of kings and Lord of lords. God, friends, has life in himself. Why? Because he is the source of all life. But you remember what the serpent said to Eve? You're going to be like God. And because God is immortal, when you sin, you're going to have immortality. And if that's the case, then you don't really need God. And that's exactly what many people believe straight from the lie of the, from the serpent himself. And so we go back to the equation. God took the dust of the earth to form the body of man. He combined that with his breath, and man became a living soul. Man was not given a soul. You do not have a soul, but you are a soul, because a living soul is a living person. If that is clear so far, would you please say amen? amen. Now the next question is this. Well, what is the breath? that God breathed into the dust. What is the breath? It's the spark of life. It's the Spirit of God. Notice what it says in Job chapter 27, verse 3. Write it down. Job 27, 3 says, All the while my breath is in me, and the what? Spirit of God is where? But what did God breathe into the nostrils of man? His breath, but this says the Spirit is, of God is in my nostrils. Why? Because the breath of God and the Spirit of God are synonymous. It means the same thing, friends. The breath of God is simply that Spirit, that life-giving power of God that He breathed that caused the dust to come alive. In fact, notice another one. In Job 33, verse 4, it says, The Spirit of God hath made me. What hath made me? 
and the breath of the Almighty hath given me what? Life. And so how did God make life from the dust? He breathed his spirit. That's his breath. That's the spark of life. That's what the spirit is, friends. It's the spark of life. It's the, it's the breath of God. In fact, if you look this up in the original, language is the word ruach. Can you say that? You have to bark it out like a dog. Ruach. It means spirit, breath, or wind. It's the spirit or life of God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 6, it says that the spirit does what? Gives life. Notice another one in John chapter 20, verse 22. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. So he breathes, they receive the Spirit. Why? Because God's breath and God's Spirit are synonymous. It's the same thing. It's the spark of life. Notice one more. In Luke 23, verse 46, it says, Jesus called out with a loud voice. Here's when he's about to die. Father, into your hands, into where? Your hands, I commit my what? My spirit. When he said this, he did what? He breathed his last, and Jesus died. When he breathed his last, he died. Now, when it says, into your hand, I commit my spirit, does that mean that when Jesus died, he literally went into the hand of his father at that moment? No, friends. Because the spirit is simply the breath. But his soul went into the grave. He was buried and resurrected the third day. And so the point simply again is this, that the spirit in man is simply the spark of life. It is the breath of God. And once that breath leaves, you have no life. And so going back to the creation equation of man, God took the elements of the earth, which is simply the dust, to form our body. He combined that with his life-giving spirit, which is simply his breath. And as a result of combining these two elements together, man became a living person, which is the same thing as a living what? A living soul. This is the creation equation of man. And by the way, friends, if you notice, without the Spirit of God, we are nothing but dust. We're dust without God's Spirit. And how do you feel about dust? I don't know about you, but I hate dust. <laughs> I'm always trying to wipe it and sweep it and vacuum it and get rid of it. Dust is absolutely worthless. And that's exactly what you are without God. <laughs> but I'm thankful that His Spirit, His breath, puts value and meaning into the dust of our body. Can you say amen? And so, this is the creation equation of man. And if this makes sense so far, would you please say amen? Now here's the next question. And everything hinges on this, friends. Here's where the confusion comes in for many people. So I'm going to say this as clearly as I can. Tell me, friends, is the Spirit, which is the breath of God, is the Spirit a part of the soul, yes or no? Yes. Listen to the question. Is the spirit a part of the soul, yes or no? Yes, it's at least 50%, right? The spirit, the spirit is a part of the soul. But now here's the next question. Is the spirit the same thing as the soul, yes or no? No, friends. 
Is the spirit the same thing as the soul? The answer is no. It's a part of it, but it's not synonymous with it. And that's where many people get confused. They confuse the soul and the spirit, and as a result, confusion comes. So if we can remember that, we can know it now exactly what happens when a person dies. So again, we, we, let's review before we move on. God took the elements of the earth, the dust. He combined it with his life-giving spirit, the spark of life, or his breath. Man became a living person, which is a living soul. The spirit is a part of the soul, but it's not the same thing as the soul. And so if that's clear, please say amen. In other words, the soul cannot exist without the dust and the spirit combined. The soul cannot exist in a state of consciousness and awareness without these two elements together. So now that we understand the equation of life, we can now understand the mystery of death. Why? Because as I said, death is simply life, but in reverse. Death is creation, but in reverse. Now let's notice what happens to the dust, the spirit, and the soul of man when he dies. Let's read it now in Psalms 104, verse 29. Thou hidest thy face, they are troubled. Thou takest away their what? Breath. And what happens? They die and return to their... So here we find those three components. When a person dies, the breath separates from the body. The body goes back to dust, from ashes to ashes, from dust to dust, right? The body decomposes, goes back to dust. And they simply die. Who's they? What's they? That's the soul. That's you. In other words, when the body and the breath separates, you simply die. You do not continue to live in a state of consciousness. Notice another one. It says the same thing a little bit differently. Ecclesiastes 12 verse 7 tells us, please write it down. It says, then shall the dust return to the earth as it was, and the spirit shall return unto God who gave it. So again, the dust, the body decomposes, goes back to dust when a person dies. And the spirit, what happens to the spirit? It returns to God who gave it. But friends, are you the spirit? What are you? You're the soul. What is the spirit, friends? That's simply the spark of life. It's simply the breath. And that breath goes back to God. That doesn't mean that you go to God. It's simply the spark of life goes back to God. Why? Because God is the source of that life. And there is no life outside of God. Can you say amen? But the soul, that is who you are, your character, your identity, your memories, it simply dies. Notice another one. In the book of Psalms 146, verse 3 and 4, the Bible says, put not your trust in princes, nor in the Son of Man in whom there is no help. Why? His breath goes forth, and what happens? His breath goes forth, he returns to his earth. In that very day, his thoughts what? So what happens when a person dies? When the, the breath and body separates, the breath goes, the body decomposes. In that very day, your thoughts perish. You, your, your, the soul your thoughts and your feelings, your emotions, your memories, your character, your identity, it simply dies. Notice another one. In James 2.26, it says that the body without the spirit is what? It's simply dead. 
So notice, here is the death equation. A body separated from the breath equals a dead soul, which is simply a dead person. That's what happens when a person dies. And if that's clear, would you please say amen? Oh, but friends, it gets even clearer. Let me, let me give you this illustration. What is this on the screen? A light bulb. Tell me, friends. Does a light bulb have light in and of itself, yes or no? No, friends. It's simply a shell, right? It doesn't have life in itself. In the same way, this body, the dust, we do not have life in and of ourselves. It's just dust. It's just a shell. But what happens when you take this shell, the light bulb, and you connect it with the source of power. You take the shell, you connect it to the power source, and all of a sudden you have light. In the same way, when God took the shell of our body or the dust, connected with the power source, which, which is his breath or his life-giving spirit, now the soul is alive. You have light. Now what happens if we disconnect the shell from the power source, what happens? What happens to the light? Where did the light go, friends? Did it go to some light heaven or light hell or light purgatory? <laughs> Where's the light? It simply ceases to exist. You see, when you disconnect the shell from the power source, the electrical currents go back to the source, the, you, and the light goes out, and all you have is a shell. That's what happens when you die. The light of your soul doesn't go to heaven or hell or purgatory. It simply ceases to exist. But let me ask you a question. Think with me. Do you remember seeing the light on the screen a few moments ago? Do you remember it? So tell me, where does the light exist then? in your memory. Do you remember seeing it? So where does it exist? In your mind or memory. In the same way, when a person dies, the soul ceases to exist in a state of consciousness, but it does exist in the memory and the mind of God. He is the keeper of our soul. Can you say amen? Now, can God bring the soul back to life again? Of course, and he promises to do that at the resurrection. And what is he going to do? How do we get the light back, friends? What do we need to do to get the light back? All we do is reconnect the shell to the power. And now the light turns on again. And God has is, is promised us in his word to reconnect the shell of our body back with his life-giving spirit so that, so that our soul, our identity, our makeup, our memories, our emotions will come alive again. But when will this take place? Not the moment we die, but the moment he comes again and resurrects us from the grave. Can you say amen? In other words, death is like turning off the light. But when Jesus comes... He's going to turn it right back on again. Can you say amen? He's going to reconnect the, 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 the decomposed dust back with his life-giving spirit. And friends, even if we're cremated, blown into smithereens, eaten by sharks, it doesn't matter. God is going to bring us back together again. Can you say amen? But he will do this at the resurrection when the trumpet sounds. And that's what the Bible clearly teaches. Notice in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16 and 17 talking about the second coming. 
For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up in the clouds, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Here we find when Jesus comes, the trumpets are going to blast, the Lord is going to shout, the angels will sing, and it's going to be so loud that those who are sleeping in the graves are going to wake up. They're going to come up out of those graves. It's going to burst open. The dead in Christ shall rise, and those who live in the last days shall be caught up with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and we're going to go to heaven together at the same time to experience the joy of it all. In fact, notice in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 52 and 53, it tells us, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this, what is this word? Mortal must put on what? When does the soul receive immortality? At the last trump when Jesus comes again. Not when you die, friends, but when the Lord returns the second time. It's then that we're going to receive a brand new immortal body. It's then that, that, that we, will, we will come up from the dead and never die again. We have everlasting, eternal, immortal life. It's a gift given at the resurrection by the Lord Jesus Christ. And if that is clear, would you please say amen? You see, friends, our loved ones are not in heaven right now enjoying it without us. Our loved ones that have passed away, they're sleeping in peace in the grave, awaiting the resurrection, and we're going to be reunited with them. We don't have to worry about, oh, our loved ones pass away, they're in heaven, and they enjoy heaven without us, and then when we get there, they're already bored, they saw it already. And, uh, no, we're going to go together at the same time and experience the same excitement and the wonder and the awe and the surprise together at the same time when Jesus comes. Our loved ones are in a better place, friends. And that better place is the grave resting in peace, waiting for the second coming. Now, friends, I want you to think logically with me for a moment. Not for a moment. The whole time you need to be thinking logically. But I want you to consider this thought with me right now. Let's say it's true that when you die, you go straight to heaven. Let's say that is true, like what many people teach. Husbands, let's say you die, you go to heaven because you follow the Lord Jesus and you love Him. And you're in heaven looking down upon the world. And you see your wife and she's crying because she misses you so much. Could you find peace seeing your wife cry? That's going to be difficult. You're going, to, you're, going to, you're going to be sad for her. But let's say as time goes on, you from heaven, you're watching your wife, and you realize, man, my wife is not crying as much as she used to cry. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, as, as some time goes by, you see some brother <laughs> begin to put the moves on your wife. And you see that your wife is actually responding. And you're looking upon this from heaven. What are you going to do? <laughs> and, then you've, and, then, and then that brother proposes and she says yes. And they get married. And from heaven you're watching them on the honeymoon night. <laughs> Could you find peace in heaven seeing that? 
Of course not. And thank God that that's not true. <laughs> when you die, you go into the grave and you rest in peace. You're sleeping, awaiting the resurrection. Parents, let's say you die, you go to heaven. From heaven, you look down upon your children and they're doing drugs, acting crazy. Could you find peace in heaven? But heaven's a place of peace. There's no tears in heaven. You see, the counterfeit doesn't make sense, does it? The truth makes sense. The truth is you die, you go into the grave, you sleep, you rest until the resurrection when we all go to heaven together. And so, friends, I know that perhaps some of you were taught or told that when your loved one passed away that they're in heaven, and perhaps you found much comfort in that. But the reality is, is that our loved ones are in a better place. But if it was in heaven, that wouldn't be a better place because they'll be looking down and worrying about us. The better place that our deceased loved ones are are in the grave, friends. They're resting in peace. You don't have to worry about them. They're sleeping. They're not suffering, friends. And they're waiting for the resurrection when Jesus returns. And when he comes, oh, what a great family reunion that's going to be. Amen? So I want to I invite you to find comfort in the truth, not in a lie or a counterfeit teaching concerning truth. Now, some of you I know are, are wondering in your mind, but what about the thief on the cross? What about the parable of the rich man and Lazarus? What about absent from the body and present with the Lord and the witch of Endor and uh, the, uh, preaching to the spirits in prison? I know that there are some verses that seem to indicate that there's consciousness in death and that when you die, you go to heaven. We don't have the time to go through all those verses tonight, but I have an 11-page handout on your way out tonight that explains every single one of those verses in context to explain what it means. And you'll see that the Bible is in complete harmony with itself. Now, I want you to notice a few more verses. Acts 2.34, For David did not ascend into the heavens. Now, if anyone was worth, worthy of dying and going to heaven, surely it would be David because he was a man after God's own heart. But David is not in heaven, friends, Peter says. Well, where is he then? Verse 29, Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried and his tomb is with us to this day. When the saints die, they go into the grave, and they sleep. Now, we know that there are some saints that are in heaven today. But I want us to consider that none of them died and went to heaven. All of them were either translated or resurrected early. Who are the three that we know by name that are in heaven today? The first one is Enoch. Did Enoch die and go to heaven? No, he was translated without seeing death. Who was the other one translated without seeing death? Elijah, caught up in the fiery chariot. He didn't die and go to heaven. He was translated without seeing death. But then the third one is Moses. We know for sure that Moses did die. The Bible makes that clear. And we know that for sure he is alive in, in heaven today. Why? Because in Matthew 17, we find Moses and Elijah talking to Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. But friends, when you think about the example of Moses, Moses did not die and go to heaven. He died, was buried, but he was resurrected early. And, the, and, and we know that very clearly from these verses. I want you to write it down, look it up when you get home. In Jude chapter 1 and verse 9, it tells us how the Lord was arguing with Satan over the dead body of Moses. And then the Bible says that the Lord rebuked Satan, which gives a strong implication that Satan tried to keep Moses in the grave. 
but the Lord rebuked him and gave him an early resurrection. We can also find that in Romans 5, verse 14, where the Bible says in Romans 5, 14, that death reigned from Adam to Moses. Death reigned from when? Adam to Moses, which shows that after Moses, death no longer reigned supremely. Why is that? Because Moses was the first one resurrected from death. He, the Lord brought him out of that grave. It was an early resurrection. And therefore, after that, death could no longer reign. And so while we find some examples of saints in heaven, all of them were either translated or resurrected early. And why did God resurrect Moses early? It's like a down payment to give you and I hope that if we trust in Jesus, that we have the promise that if we die, we will come up in the resurrection. Can you say amen? amen? It's a down payment, friends. That's why the Lord did it. Now, next question. Is there any consciousness in death? Notice, Jesus one day was teaching the disciples when, he re- when all of a sudden he received news that his friend Lazarus was sick. He was what? Jesus did not go to heal him right away, but he stayed that place for two days, and during that time, Lazarus, who was sick, ended up dying. He died. Then notice what Jesus says. John 11, verses 11 through 14. Write it down. Very important verse. Jesus said unto them, Our friend Lazarus, what? Sleeps. But, he, but, but I go that I may awake him out of sleep. Then said his disciples, Lord, if he sleep, he shall do well. Why are you going to wake him up? He's sick. He needs his rest. That's what they were thinking. If he sleep, he shall do well. Howbeit Jesus spoke of his death. But they thought that he had spoken of taking a rest in sleep. Then said Jesus unto them plainly, Lazarus is dead. But how did Jesus describe death? Sleep. A simple sleep. Death is sleep in the Bible. And so he said, we must wake Lazarus out of sleep. He was going to resurrect him from the grave. And on the way there, Jesus encountered the grieving sisters of Lazarus. They fell at their feet, at his feet. They were mourning. They were crying. They missed their brother so much. And then Jesus gives comfort to those who are grieving. But notice how he comforted them. He did not comfort them with a lie. Jesus comforted them with truth. Notice what he said. Thy brother is in heaven right now. Is that what Jesus said? No. What did he say? Thy brother shall... Rise again. Jesus comforted them with the hope of the resurrection, not with the lie that he was in heaven right now. He said, don't worry, your brother shall rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection when? At the last day. You see, Martha understood the topic of death, and she had the correct answer. For if this answer was wrong, Jesus would have corrected it right there and then. But he didn't correct it because she was right. Her brother was in the grave, sleeping, waiting for the resurrection at the last day when he would rise again to life. And if that's clear, would you please say amen? And then Jesus goes to the grave, tells the people, remove the stone. But Lord, he's been dead four days. By now, he is stinking. Remove the stone. And then Jesus, as he looks upon the place of the dead, we find his reaction In the shortest verse of the Bible, two words. But this verse speaks volumes. 
concerning the heart of God for humanity. The Bible says, Jesus wept. Friends, why is he weeping? Is he weeping for the one that died? No. Because Jesus knows he's about to resurrect him from the grave. Not only that, but Jesus knows that Lazarus is just sleeping. It's not, it's not that big of a deal to Jesus. He's not weeping for the one that died. He's weeping for the living who are in deep pain that death had brought to their hearts. Here we find the picture of a God that is not indifferent to human sorrow. When we weep, He weeps. When we hurt, He hurts. When we are filled with sorrow, Jesus feels it in His own flesh. And so if you've lost a loved one and your heart is broken, take courage and comfort in the fact that God sees your pain, my friend. He knows what you're going through. He understands. And He is the God that can turn sorrow into sweet joy. Amen. Jesus wept. Oh, what a powerful verse. That's a sermon in itself. Jesus wept, and then Jesus, the life-giving God, called into the place of the dead. He said three words, Lazarus, come down. Is that what Jesus said? <laughs> did Jesus say, Lazarus, come down as if Lazarus was in heaven? What did he say, Lazarus, come forth. Why? Because where was he? In the grave, friends, sleeping waiting for the resurrection. Lazarus, come forth. And that word of God had the power in it to do exactly what it said. Lazarus came forth from that tomb. And they said, Jesus said, remove the bandages. They removed the bandages. And then Lazarus, filled with life, began to testify. And here's what he said. Jesus, why did you have to bring me back down here to this world? I was having such a good time in heaven. I was singing with the angels. I was walking the streets of gold. Why did you have to bring me back down here to this world? Did that, is that what Lazarus said? No, friends. Did he give a, an account that heaven was for real? No, friends. Why? Because he was not there. He was in the grave, sleeping. And by the way, Jesus had to call him by name. You know why? Because God's word is so powerful. That if Christ would have just said, come forth, every grave would have burst open right there and then. <laughs> so Christ had to be specific, amen? amen? And so we find this example very clearly that death is simply a sleep that lasts to the resurrection. Notice another one. In the book of Acts, chapter 7, we find Stephen preaching. People don't like what, it, what, what he's saying. I hope you can't relate with that tonight. And in the midst of the sermon... The Bible tells us that the Pharisees rushed upon Stephen and they stoned Stephen. And it says that as Stephen was being stoned, that he fell asleep. Now, how do you picture that in your mind? Stephen is getting stoned and he says, wow, I feel kind of tired. Let me just take a nap real quick. Is that what happened? When it says that Stephen was being stoned and he fell asleep, it simply means that Stephen died. Why? Because death is simply sleep over and over again in the Bible. In fact, you're getting the handout has, 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 has almost 50 verses 
in the Bible how God likens death to that of sleep. Now, next question. What kind of sleep is the sleep of death? Because, you know, sometimes we go to sleep at night, but we don't get any rest. Sometimes we toss in turns and have dreams and nightmares. Is that what, kind of, is that what death is like? I want you to notice. In Ecclesiastes 9, verse 5 and 6, it says, For the living know that they shall die, but the dead know more than the living. Is that what it says? The dead know how much? They know not anything. Neither have they any more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Also their love and their hatred, their envy, is now perished. Neither have they any more portion forever in anything that is done under the sun. In other words, the dead know nothing, friends. Their love and hatred, their feelings and emotions are gone. In other words, you don't have to worry about someone dying and coming back to haunt you. Their hatred and their love is perished, friends. They don't know anything. In other words, death is a sleep where, you, where you're totally unconscious of the passing of time in your surroundings. You don't have to be afraid of the dead. They can't hurt you, friends. The only one you should be afraid of is the living. <laughs> the living can hurt you. In fact, notice in verse 10, it says, Whatsoever thy hand finds to do, do it with thy might, for there is no work, nor device, nor knowledge, nor wisdom in the where? In the grave, whither thou goest. In other words, when you go to the grave, it, it, there's no consciousness at all. Death is like pressing pause on a person's life. Let me illustrate it like this. Let's say you're listening to a song and you press pause, what's going to happen? The song will stop right when you press pause. But does time stop? Time continues on, right? And let's say you go back an hour from then, or a day, or a week, or a month, or a year, or 10 years, or a 1,000 years, and assuming that that thing was plugged in the whole time, and you go back and you press play, what's going to happen? The song will play where? From where? Exactly where it left off. That's what death is like. It's like pressing pause on a person's life. A thousand years can go by, but the very next thing that person knows is the resurrection. So it's not as if you die and you're in the grave just completely bored out of your mind, just can't wait for the resurrection. No, it's not like that, friends. You're in the grave and you're totally unconscious of the passing of time. A thousand years can go by, but the very next thing you know is the resurrection. So it's as if you die and the very next thing, you receive immortality at the coming of Christ. And if that makes sense, would you please say amen? Now, some of you might be wondering, but what about near-death experiences where individuals had experiences that contradict what the Bible is saying? Where people, you know, they, they died on the hospital table and they heard voices and they saw things and they were conscious and God said that it wasn't their time and they saw visions of heaven and, and movies are being made. Heaven is for real and all that. What about those situations? Well, friends, I want you to consider that it's not called death experiences. It's near-death experiences. In other words, the person didn't really die, friends. If there was consciousness, then there was still life. You see, medical science has shown that your heart can stop beating, and, 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 and thus you, you have no pulse, but you're not really dead until your brain is dead. Isn't that right? And when a person is faltering between life and death due to a lack of oxygen, 
There's still things that are happening in the mind. Uh, mental illusions can be seen, and, and, and this does not mean you died. It simply means that you are near death. And during those times, you can see things, you can hear things, you can, but it's altered psychother- uh, uh, psychochemistry. That's what it is, friends. Altered psychochemistry can create illusionary experiences. It's perceived reality, not actual reality. And drugs are also a major factor that causes these illusions. Also, science has shown that the stimulation of the right angular gyrus of the brain, that organ in the brain, that specific organ, the stimulation of it can actually create an out-of-body illusion. Not experience, but an illusion. So those who felt their soul left leave their body, did not really die. They were simply hallucinating. It was an illusion. And friends, let me tell you, surely God can work in these moments and tell a person, you know, now's not your time to to, to die and I still have a plan and purpose for your life. Surely God can work in that time, but so can Satan to confuse people about what happens when a person dies. And so we don't test the Word of God by a subjective experience. We test every experience by the objective Word of God. Can you say amen? And the Word of God is clear when it comes to this, friends. In Psalms 115:17, it says that the dead do not praise the Lord, neither any that go down into silence. Friends, if I died and went to heaven, I would be praising God, wouldn't you? But it says the dead don't praise the Lord. Why? Because when they die, they go into the grave and they sleep unto the resurrection. Notice another one. There's so much verses. We don't have the time to go through them all. Psalm 6, verse 5, For in death there is no remembrance of thee. In the grave who shall give thee thanks? Surely if you died and went to heaven, you'd be thanking God, but you don't, friends, according to the Bible. Why? Because you're in the grave, asleep, a, 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 a peaceful sleep where you're unconscious of the passing of time. Notice another one. In Isaiah 38, verse 18 and 19, For the grave cannot praise thee, death cannot celebrate thee, They that go down into the pit cannot hope for thy truth. There goes purgatory, friends. No such thing as hope after the grave. You die, you can't hope for truth after that. Probation is closed. And that's why it says, the living shall praise thee as I do this day. Who's going to praise God? It's the living. That's why while we have life, while the blood is flowing warm in our veins, while we have breath, let's use every breath to live in honor and praise and worship our God, our life giver and life sustainer. Can you say amen? What we do, we must do it now while we have time. Oh, young people, you need to give your parents flowers right now while they can see them, smell them, touch them, and enjoy them. Because no matter how many flowers you bring at the casket, they can appreciate it, friends. We need to apologize to people right now while they can hear us. Because no matter how many times at the casket you say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, they can't hear you, friends. What we do, let us do it right now while we still have life. Amen? Amen. Now we know what happens at death. The next question is, how did the false doctrine of the immortal soul creep into the Christian church today? Well, friends, this false doctrine of the immortal soul crept into the church from the same place that Sunday worship crept into the church, from the uniting of paganism and Christianity in the early centuries. Notice what one historian said. He said that the pagan doctrine of the immortality of the human soul crept into the back door of the church. The Babylonians believed this doctrine. 
the, the, the Grecians and the Romans and the, and the pagans, they believe this is the fundamental uh, doctrine of their belief system. And many Christians believe it too. And friends, because of that, tonight you ought to be thankful for the truth. Because Jesus said that when we know the truth, the truth shall make us free. We don't have to be deceived by any demons in disguise. Amen? When we know the truth, we can already identify the counterfeit from a far distance away. How many of you are thankful for the truth tonight? Now, friends, listen, some might be wondering, what about the thief on the cross, though? Didn't he go to heaven that day when he died? What about the parable of the rich man and Lazarus? What about absent from the body and present with the Lord? What about baptism for the dead? As I mentioned before, there are a few scriptures that seem to indicate the opposite, that seem to contradict what, what the Bible uh, uh, says, what, what all these other verses say. But here's the thing, friends. If you have 50 scriptures saying something very clearly about a subject, and then you have 9 or 10 scriptures that seem to say something different, are you going to build your doctrine and your case upon the 9 or 10 scriptures or on the 50 scriptures? You're going to go with the weight of evidence. Isn't that right? You're going to see what the, what the majority has to say. And then you'll study these 9 or 10 scriptures in light of what the weight of evidence says. And when you study it carefully and contextually, you'll find that the Bible does not contradict at all. It's our faulty interpretation and understanding of the verses that seem to contradict. But when we understand what it means contextually, everything is in harmony together. Does that make sense? And so we don't have the time to go through those nine or ten scriptures that seem to indicate the opposite. The handout explains it. So please take time to go over that handout tonight. But while we still have a few more minutes left, let's deal with this one in particular. What about the thief on the cross where Jesus said to this thief, uh, Surely I say to you, today you will be with who? <clears throat> with me where? In paradise. So people read this and, and they say, well, there you have. The thief died and went to paradise that day, the day he died. But who did Jesus say the thief would be with in paradise? You will be with me in paradise. And there's a big problem with that. You know why? Because Jesus did not go to paradise that day. Christ did not go to heaven the day, the day he died. He went into the grave and he slept and was resurrected the third day. And even when he resurrected, Jesus said to Mary in John 20, 17, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father so we find that jesus did not go to heaven uh, ascending to the father and going to paradise on that day that he died not even into the third day he was there and so how is it possible for the thief to be with jesus on that day in paradise when jesus himself was not there do you see the difficulty yes or no and so how do we understand it well friends it all lies in a little comma a little punctuation mark makes a big difference. You see, the Bible in the Hebrew and Greek does not have punctuation marks like periods and commas like we have in English. The punctuations were added when the Bible was translated to English so that we can make out what the Bible is saying. And the translators did a fairly good job with a few mistakes in punctuation. Now, I want to share with you that punctuation makes a huge difference. And by the way, by the way, those who say... Some people say the punctuations are inspired by God. 
Every comma, every period is inspired by God. Some people take that stand, but you're crazy if you take that stand. Because if you believe that punctuations are inspired by God, then you have to believe that handkerchiefs or napkins can get sick. Does anyone believe that a handkerchief can get sick? You know why? Because in Acts 19, 12, you can write that down, look it up. In Acts chapter 19 and verse 12, the comma is in the wrong place. And where the comma is, handkerchiefs can get sick. And so not all punctuation is not, punctuation is not inspired. So notice how big a difference a, a, a comma can make. Here's this sentence. Notice with me on the screen. <clears throat> a woman, without her, man is lost. Who's lost in this sentence? Is the man lost or is the woman lost? How many of you say the man is lost? Can I see your hands? How many of you say the woman is lost? How many of you are lost? (laughs) It all depends on where you put the comma. So notice, we put the comma here. And notice who's lost when we put the comma here. A woman, without her, man is lost. Who's lost? The man is lost without his woman. But notice what happens when we move the comma to after the word man, just a little move. It now has a totally different meaning. It now says a woman without her man is lost. Who's lost? The woman without her man is the one that's lost. Does a comma make a huge difference? Yes, and that's the case with this passage. Notice with me. Here's where the comma is in your Bible. Jesus said unto him, Assuredly I say to you, comma, Today, you will be with me in paradise. It seems to say that the thief went to paradise that day. But then notice we move the comma to after the word today. It now reads, Surely I say to you today, comma, you will be with me in paradise. In other words, the promise was given on that day, but it was not fulfilled on that day. Because Jesus did not go to paradise on that day. So when will the promise be fulfilled that the thief would be with Jesus in paradise? It would be fulfilled when Jesus comes in the resurrection. Just like the thief prayed when he said, remember me when you come in your kingdom. That's what he was praying for. And that's what Jesus promised him. The promise was given on that day, but it wasn't fulfilled on that day. And if that's clear, would you please say amen? Why can Jesus give such a promise? Because John chapter 11, verse 25 Christ said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Christ is the resurrection and the life. Notice another one. In 1 John 5, 11 and 12, and this is the record that God hath done what? Given to us what? Eternal life. And this life is in his Son. He that hath the the Son hath life. And he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. What's the point? Eternal life, immortal life, is a gift given by Jesus, friends, when he comes the second time. We don't have it in ourselves. The only ones that's going to have eternal life are those who have Jesus, because the one that does not have the Son does not have life. There is no life, eternity, in and of ourselves. And if that's clear, please say amen. A lot more we can say, but let's wind this down to a close. Some people protest, but I know what I 
I know what I know. I, I know what I saw. I know what I heard. I know what I experienced. That was my grandpa that visited me. That was my deceased loved one that, that came to me on our anniversary and spoke kind words to me. I know what I saw. I know what I experienced. <coughs> But friends, remember, the devil is the master manipulator. He can manipulate our feelings and senses. According to the Bible, the dead don't come back to communicate with the living. In Job 7, verse 9 and 10, it says, As the cloud is consumed and vanishes away, so that he that goes down to the grave shall come up when? No more. He shall return no more to his house, neither shall his place know him anymore. So who are those loved ones? Who are those beings then? These apparitions. Who could it be if it's not truly our loved ones? Revelation 16, 14 says, they are the spirits of devils working miracles. And Satan is so cruel to mess with our emotions in that way. But that's what it is, friends. Demons in disguise coming to deceive. He did it before. You remember the witch of Endor? Supposedly brought up the prophet Samuel. That was not Samuel, friends. That was a demon in disguise, and King Saul was deceived by that apparition. Satan has done it in the past, and he's doing it today with the apparitions of the Virgin Mary. Friends, that's not Mary. It cannot. It's a demon in disguise. And many people are believing in these false miracles instead of the clear teachings of the Word of God. Friends, I appeal to you tonight. We can't trust our feelings and emotions or outward demonstrations. Trust the Word of God. Amen? The Virgin Mary is sleeping, friends, waiting the resurrection. We can't pray. She can't do anything. She can't intercede for us. She is in the ground, sleeping, awaiting the resurrection. When Jesus comes, then she will live. There's a story about a missionary couple that went to Africa. They had a little girl. This girl accidentally ate poison one day, something poisonous, and she died. And that, those parents had to bury the little girl. After the funeral service was finished, the mother was in the bedroom of the little girl, crying and weeping, just missing her, her daughter, just missing her so much. When all of a sudden she heard the front door open, and she heard little steps running down the hall, and then she saw the bedroom door open, and before her very eyes, she saw her little girl. She came running, and she said, Mommy, Mommy, it's me. Mommy, Mommy, it's me. It's okay. Don't cry. It's me. I'm okay. And that mother said, it looked like her. It sounded like her. It smelled like her. And everything in her being wanted this to be true. But this mother knew what the Bible says about death. And she knew that this could not be her daughter, even though she wanted it to be true. And she found the faith to say to this apparition, in the name of Jesus Christ, leave me. You are not my daughter. And instantly, the being vanished. Satan is so cruel to mess with our emotions. And so, friends, I want to encourage you tonight. If you're being visited by spirits, if you feel some type of presence in your home, if you're hearing voices or things that go bump in the night, call upon the name of Jesus. And all hell has to flee at that mighty name. Amen? 
Friends, we've learned something very amazing tonight from God's Word. Truth is too clear for us to be confused. And I want to appeal to you that if you're dabbling into the realm of, of spiritualism, whether it be witchcraft or horoscopes or magic or Ouija boards or psychics or tarot cards or Eastern meditation, <coughs> contemplative prayer, this counterfeit spiritual formation movement, or even things that seem innocent like Harry Potter and Twilight and certain Walt Disney films, video games that confuse our young little minds concerning what happens at death, if you're being entertained by it, you're preparing yourself to be deceived, friends. We must stay close to the Word of God. And my last point as we close, why is it so important that we know the truth about death? Not just so that we're not deceived, but the main reason why it's so important to understand the truth about death is because the false doctrine of the immortal soul is a direct attack on Calvary. How so? Let me explain. If it's true that when you die, you don't really die, and if it's true that Jesus became man and died on the cross, that means that Jesus did not really die. That means he just went through some type of motion. And that means we have denied the greatest truth of all, the sacrifice of Christ. Not only that, but John 3.16 says, can you say it for me? For God so loved. Should not perish, but shall have what kind of life? That's the same thing as immortal life, friends. He died so that we could have everlasting immortal life. But friends, if we already have immortality, then Jesus didn't have to die. If we already have immortality in ourselves, then why do we need Jesus? We don't need Jesus. And that's exactly what Satan wants you to believe. The New Age movement tells you, you don't need God. You are God. Just pray enough. The answer is within you. The Christ consciousness within, they say. And if you're God, then you don't need Jesus. But friends, the fact that we have sinned and the fact that we are mortal, the fact that we don't have life in ourselves, shows that we need Jesus. Do you need Jesus? There's no life out of Christ, friends. And soon Jesus will come in the clouds. Families separated by death, reunited in life. Little babies who've died are not growing up in heaven right now and you're missing their whole life. No, these little infants are in their grave sleeping and you're going to be able to see them as the angels place them back into their arms and you can watch your children grow up with their own eyes in heaven. And that's good news. But Jesus is only coming for those who've accepted his death on the cross in their place. And so as we close tonight, how many of you want Jesus to be your resurrection and life? If so, let us pray. Father in heaven, Thank you, Lord, for making this message clear tonight. We thank you for the truth that sets us free, that dispels the confusion and the uncertainty. We thank you, dear God, that for the Christian, death is not the end, for we have the hope 
of living again when you come in the clouds. And Father, if any of us die before you come, please, may we, may we sleep with the assurance that when you call, we will come forth. Make us ready for that day is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.